Five, four, three, two, one. Let's go. Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love. Hi, and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. My name is Dee Moore, and I am a stage four kidney warrior. This podcast is dedicated to encourage, educate, and inspire as we explore all aspects of kidney disease, chronic illnesses, and health. If you have any questions or ideas for topics you would like me to cover, please get in contact with me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Today's episode is the premiere of the listener-led episodes. These are episodes where the questions are chosen by you. Joining me today to answer your kidney transplant questions is Dr. Frank Dorr. He is a consultant transplant surgeon and clinical lead of transplantation at Imperial College Renal and Transplant Centre based at Hammersmith Hospital. He is passionate about all aspects of organ donation and transplantation, connecting with and involving patients, education, science and excellent patient care. He has a special interest in living donation and preemptive transplantation and is a council member of ESOT and BTS, Chair of the Clinical Ethics Committee at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust, Deputy Chair of the NHS BT Kidney Advisory Group and involved as editor of several scientific journals. He has a special interest in social media and set up the ESOT Social Ambassador Programme and ESOT Chat. Hi and welcome to Diary of a Kidney Warrior, the podcast. How are you doing today, Dr. Dor? Great, thank you. And you, Dee? I'm feeling really good. I'm very excited about this interview today. And um, this interview is very different to other interviews that I've done in the past because the majority of the questions have actually come from the podcast listeners. So I'm very excited to hear your answers to the question and yeah to get interactive sounds good to me i'm also very happy that uh, most of the questions came from patients excellent so the first question before we go into those questions is how long have you been a surgeon um well actually i was looking up the data i qualified in 2001 and since then i've been uh, in in training for a surgeon and been a consultant for uh, more than i think 12 years Okay. And how many surgeries have you done? Well, also, this is a very difficult question, actually, but it's, it's really thousands and thousands. Um, I did 2,500 surgeries uh, during my training, and wow. I think that has multiplied uh, by many numbers uh, after that. That's a lot of surgeries. Yeah, absolutely. And what was your very first surgery? Well, obviously, you have the, the little things to remove in, in outpatient clinics, but I <laughs> haven't counted those. So my first real operation under a general anesthetic, a patient under a general anesthetic, of course, uh, was an incisional hernia repair. So it was basically a hernia because of an operation that the patient had before. And it was quite a big operation. It took about two hours and it was after a big abdominal operation. Um, but it went very well. I was really excited. And 2,000 plus surgeries later, here we are today. It really is a pleasure to interview today. So the first question coming from Jerome on Instagram, his first question is, 
how will I be evaluated for a transplant? Yeah, this is a great question, of course. Um, so evaluation for a kidney transplant, because that's what we're talking about, assuming, um, uh, involves quite a lot of blood tests. And obviously, as a kidney patient, you will have had many blood tests uh, in your career, so to speak, as a, as a patient. Um, but we, we, we do a very extensive set of blood tests, including um, kidney function, liver function, um, various uh, viruses that people may have, might have had. Uh, so as broad as possible. Obviously, you need lots of scans, so imaging, as we call it. Um, quite often, people will have an ultrasound of their kidneys, an ultrasound of their whole abdomen. Um, and also many patients will have had a CT scan um, to look at the blood vessels where a kidney transplant uh, should be positioned. Uh, if those uh, blood vessels are of uh, sufficient quality because they could be attacked and damaged by uh, a process called atherosclerosis. Um, and that's unfortunately the case in, in many people who have kidney disease, for example, due to diabetes um, or high blood pressure. So that's, that's really an important investigation. On top of that, there's several colleagues uh, who we ask for an opinion. So lots of people will see a cardiologist and some cardiology testing might be necessary. Obviously a chest X-ray to look at the heart and the lungs, um, an EKG, um, and, and often people need some sort of functional testing of the heart. So is the heart uh, capable of supporting a person safely during an operation and especially um, for a transplant to assess any risk of um, the, the coronary arteries. So the arteries that supply the heart with oxygen that could also be damaged by the kidney disease or the underlying factors that have caused the kidney disease. Um, and then we often ask an anesthetist um, to give an opinion because many people will have other problems of their health um, that could affect their um, suitability for a big operation. And of course, if there's any other issues that were found or identified in the overall medical history of a patient, we ask another expert to look in, into that uh, according to their uh, specialty. Wow, that's a very in-depth process. There's a lot that you have to take into consideration. It's more than the kidneys themselves and the vessels around that. It's, it's everything, isn't it? Absolutely. And of course, part of this evaluation for being a kidney transplant recipient, uh, we ask our tissue typists, uh, so the speci specialist on tissue types, to, to look at the, the patient's uh, tissue type and blood group. Um, this is important because a potential donor obviously would uh, need to be uh, as good as possible matched for the tissue type, which is called HLA. This is the human leukocyte antigen. And basically that's quite unique uh, for every person. Um, and we want a donor organ to be matched as closely as possible to the recipient of that, uh, of that organ. So that, uh, that will have to be taken into account before you can be waitlisted for a kidney transplant or being considered for a live donor kidney transplant. The next question is, what's the process to find a match? What can or should I do to improve my chances of being matched and get off the waiting list sooner? 
Yeah, I would like to, to take one step back, actually, because the question is really, um, how can I be most successful in getting a transplant? And I think this is a crucial point. And unfortunately, the default is that many kidney patients uh, and their doctors expect a patient to um, become a dialysis patient first before they are um, even considered sometimes for a kidney transplant. And in my opinion, this is not the best approach. Um, so I think what we could do here today is also empower people with knowledge that should you reach a stage of your kidney disease that would require um, dialysis in the future, I think before we start thinking about dialysis, we need to consider a so-called preemptive transplant. So this is a kidney transplant before we actually have dialysis on board for the patient. So that requires, of course, a very early education of people. And that's why I'm so excited about this podcast because this is part of educational processes for patients. So if you really reach a stage of your kidney disease, say that your kidney function is about 25, 30%, it would be time for the uh, advanced kidney care nurses or the advanced kidney care team, otherwise known as low clearance uh, uh, team or even pre-dialysis clinic. And obviously that's not a, not a term I particularly like and support, um, but it would be time for, for, for those professionals then to educate patients that a preemptive transplantation would be the best option and obviously, kidneys are not just out there on the shelves in the hospital. <laughs> no. and therefore, we, we, we need to really make sure that people know that the best possible chance um, for a kidney transplant would be through a living donor. So anyone who can find a living donor in their social network, because you don't have to be family or blood related, it could be anyone who is willing to donate a kidney out of free will and obviously without payment, um, they can be considered and then these, that, that process takes some time. And obviously this is not just something that people can accept really easily because first you have to accept you have kidney disease that is progressive and you might need renal replacement therapy in the future, which is really, really a difficult thing for people to digest. And I say this without being a kidney patient, but having seen really, really thousands of kidney patients in my career that we're all struggling. No one said, oh, that was super easy. Um, yeah, I accepted it. And I just, um, you know, talked to, to some friends and family and all of them wanted to donate. This is a process. So the earlier patients have told me the education is, the better. And I wholeheartedly support that because it buys you time. It buys you options. And I think, especially if you are in a situation where you feel that your know, hope is almost lost, uh, I think we need to provide people with options and opportunities to go yeah. out and talk about your kidney disease, to, 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 to share with your loved ones that a transplant is the best option and that living donor kidney transplant is the best option. And even more so if we can prevent dialysis at all. But unfortunately, the system is not set as such in many kidney units in the UK, but also the rest of the world. In my native country, my home country, the Netherlands, there is a, that's a little bit better in that respect, I must say, where 
people really have left the default that dialysis always precedes transplantation and that living donation is the best option. And there are lots of barriers, of course, that people will face. Um, it's difficult. You're not just asking someone, can I borrow a cup of sugar? <laughs> it is a really big thing. Um, but yes. on the other hand, for loved ones, it's also very difficult to see that their loved one is getting worse from their kidney disease and that you know, they are condemned in a certain way for a, a very difficult life with a chronic illness. And if you look, and this is my, my big driving force, if you look at the patient survival rate, so your chance to, to live healthily and well without dying um, on dialysis is much worse than the life, the quality of life and the length of life that most transplant patients will have. So a kidney transplant uh, should normally buy you at least 10 to 15 years of life in good quality. And this is, I think, uh, very important to realize. And lots of people don't realize that, for example, the prospect of life. So uh, basically how, how, how long would you live likely on dialysis is worse than many types of cancer these days. So wow. this is an eye opener for many people and they never heard about that. And of course, I'm not trying to hear, uh, to point, to pick the very rosy picture for people, um, but this is, this is evidence-based and, and real. So there's a big, big, big incentive to, to do early education about preemptive kidney transplantation with a living donor. Also, of course, Preemptive transplantation with a deceased donor would be would be great, but we simply don't have enough of these organs available. And the quality of a living donor kidney is generally much better than that of a deceased donor kidney. This makes sense because a deceased person just died and they didn't die because they were so healthy. Um, the number of road traffic accidents in young people, uh, like in the past, that would come to an organ donation um, is, is really limited. So most patients who donate their organs have been very ill for at least some time, and these organs will definitely be of less quality than most of the living uh, donor organs, because that's a well-selected uh, person, has had many, many medical tests, um, and would generally be of, of great health, actually, when they go into the donation, because otherwise they wouldn't be able to survive on one kidney for the rest of their lives, which is a normal length of life for living donors. So it all comes together beautifully by saying preemptive life donor kidney transplantation should really be the default. Early education to achieve that is hugely necessary um, and also would provide people with time so buying time to investigate the options and of course if nothing else is available and all the options um, um, uh, seem uh, not suitable then obviously the life-supporting dialysis treatments with either peritoneal or hemodialysis are still very good options for people as a temporary solution to transplantation wow there's a, a lot there to consider I mean, I myself am stage four, and there was a, a discussion a while ago about preemptive transplantation, but there's been no discussion since. So it's very interesting that you that you believe in that as you know that that should be the standard 
and I hope that a lot more um, surgeons and, and nephrologists will look at that um, across the UK and across the world. I hope so too. And, you know, there's, there's really good evidence in, in the literature that the outcomes of preemptive transplantation uh, are much better. And also many people will have, um, so, some people say, oh, you should have a period of dialysis to know actually what it feels like to be on dialysis and then you start appreciating your transplant better. So that's almost like a punitive measure. Some people say, well, people take their drugs really poorly after transplantation. And certainly if they haven't been a dialysis patient, um, then they won't appreciate how important it is to take these drugs. All these things um, are definitely not true. Uh, and, and simply reflect a, um, an old fashioned uh, uh, assumption and an old fashioned um, uh, system. I think it's also making the assumption that because you haven't gone through something that um, you can't appreciate how serious it is as well. Saying that, oh, you know, if you haven't gone through that, then you're not going to take it seriously. I think um, that's very negative. From when you have the diagnosis of having kidney disease, you already know that you're in a serious situation. And so, I mean, speaking personally, I can't speak for everyone, but you're going to want to do all that you can do to help yourself. So I think when you're given that that lifeline, people are going to embrace that and say, yeah, I'll do whatever it takes. So um, I definitely think that that's a negative thing to make that assumption. Yeah, and I, I understand that completely. And also what I understand is, and I hear this from from lots of kidney patients, um, they are reluctant to talk about their kidney disease and their need for a transplant, even though it might be you know, far away in the future. Um, people might also feel reluctant to, to, to ask or even feel that they ask or force in some way their loved ones to make a decision to get tested to be a potential life donor. That is something I would also completely understand, but I also hear the other side of the story in our patient seminars and educational sessions. We, I get a lot of questions from, from relatives and friends of people that refuse to take their offer to be a live kidney donor for them, just because they don't want to uh, put their own health above the health of someone else and they feel that they might jeopardize the health of that particular potential live donor. But obviously, you know, I can only reassure everyone that uh, only those people who we tested extensively, uh, only those people that are deemed healthy enough to live with one kidney and healthy enough to live through that operation safely and can look after themselves well, will be allowed, so to speak, to donate their kidney while they're alive. Because of course, we are not here to make two patients uh, uh, out of the situation by having a live kidney donor into trouble. That's never, never, never the, uh, never an option. That makes sense because one of the questions by Kristen is for a donor, how does the kidney function change after donating a kidney? Everyone says no change, but there has to be. At the least, it takes longer for the body to filter and produce urine. Yeah, that's a great point. And this is, of course, the, 
um, the cornerstone of living donation is that we determine as to whether a person is able to live with one kidney healthily. So if you remove one kidney during a live kidney donor operation, uh, this is called a live donor nephrectomy, we remove the kidney and then the next day, it's very interesting because if you assume that two kidneys provide 100% of kidney function, if we take out one kidney, you would expect that 50% of the kidney function is left more or less, correct? Yes. But actually it is always much higher. So the remaining kidney picks up the you know, reserve capacity immediately as soon as the body um, understands and feels that they only have one kidney left, that particular kidney would you know, go in, in a bit of overdrive. And so the kidney function, if you look at GFR, for example, and assuming um, the, the, the GFR is say 90 in the donor, um, the next day, it is very likely for this GFR to be around 60 of the 90 oh. rather than 45. Okay. And the creatinine, you know, you never see creatinine going up twice as high unless there is another problem, but this is extremely rare. Like a, a patient, a, a donor might not have had enough fluids or, or things like that. But in general, the kidney function picks up very quickly after removal of a donor kidney, uh, in a living donor that is. And in the first year, you see that the kidney function then slowly starts to increase. And at some point it reaches a level, which is sort of the new GFR or the new creatinine for the donors. And that could be that it is not completely normal because it will never be the same as it was with two kidneys, but it is something that we would like to see as stable. And we follow up our living donors on a yearly basis, a bit more in the first year to see how things go but in the rest of their lives as well, every year. And what people should also realize is that um, any living donor in the UK, but also in the Netherlands and a few other countries um, that would develop a kidney problem, say in three decades later, um, because there was a small renal cell cancer in the, in the remaining kidney, just unrelated to the donation, but that person would only have one kidney left and that would need removal of that kidney, and thus it would need, um, uh, they would need a transplant or dialysis temporarily. Those people will get prioritized for a kidney transplant in, in these countries that I mentioned. So that there is a lifelong safety net basically for, for any person who donates a kidney while alive. I didn't know that. There you go. But that's why we're here, right? To discuss these things and <laughs> to make sure that other people know as well. Absolutely. You know, by, by coming to these yearly visits, it's like an MOT of a living kidney donor. You can sometimes identify that in case a person uh, develops high blood pressure, these things quite often, as many patients will, will know um, that listen to this podcast, you live with hypertension and high blood pressure sometimes for years without realizing that you have it. And then you come with kidney problems due to the high blood pressure. So by, by looking after our donors, we can see at least that if someone develops high blood pressure, we can treat early. Uh, and this is true for other healthcare, health problems as well. So it's, it's, it's a great way of preventing problems and treating them immediately when they arise. The next question, um, back to Jerome, is 
what will my recovery be like? How soon will I be able to go home? And how often will I need to come back for checkups? Yeah, another very good point. And I know that uh, healthcare has, has, is moving. Um, so we are looking much more impatient reported outcome measures these days, rather than what is important for the doctors or the team. So this is a great question and relates to PROMS, patient-related outcome measures. Um, of course, any operation has a, a certain time of recovery. And in general, every operation somehow seems to have that. Um, it's about six weeks of general recovery. Um, so the day before the surgery, you get admitted to the hospital, then you have your operation in case this is a planned live donor transplant. And at least uh, you know one day in advance, of course, that uh, you can come into the hospital. Um, and the hospital stay depends a little bit uh, on how well the kidney starts picking up. So with live donors, um, those kidneys start to work immediately in 95 to 100% of the kidneys. Um, with the cease donor transplant, so these kidneys often have a bit more a troublesome road to the transplant in terms of they come from a person who just died, they have been on the road for several hours um, uh, because it often is not from the same city as where the recipient is. Um, and then, uh, the, the, then the recovery is also a bit longer. So those kidneys sometimes are sleeping as we call them. Uh, official term is delayed graft function. So these patients quite often need uh, a bit of dialysis for a couple of days or even a week. But on average, a kidney transplant recipient from a live donor stays about five to eight days if all goes well. And uh, for a deceased donor kidney transplant, this is more like a week to sometimes two weeks. And of course, if there's complications, there's, there's always a chance that it will be longer, uh, but these are the averages. And then the general recovery um, yeah, depends how, uh, how fit you were before the transplant. And again, if you have not been on dialysis for, for 10 years, for example, um, you are a bit fitter uh, going into the operation. And depending on your age and your body mass index and, 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 and other health, health problems you might have, um, this will also impact on your total recovery. So the fitter you are, and that's why I always like to see you know, videos from yourself, for example, you're working out, doing the best you can to stay fit, uh, eating healthily, um, trying to sleep regularly and having a as normal life as potentially possible, because I realized that it's not easy for a kidney patient. And especially I, I talk to lots of dialysis patients on hemodialysis. I mean, life is not easy. And it's very easy to say from a doctor's perspective, go and do some exercise. But if you're on hemodialysis for three times a week uh, and you're bummed out before and you're bummed out after, and you nearly don't have normal days where you feel completely fine. I think it's very difficult for us, uh, for, for patients to, 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 to do some exercise and do extra things. But if you are fitter, obviously going into the operation, you obviously also need less time to recover. But many people, patients um, mention right after the transplant, if the kidney is working straight away, um, they mention that they feel like a new engine is burning and the new engine is giving them um, 
lots of you know power and 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 the will to recover and most kidney patients when they they are transplanted are quite often cold and itchy and the the skin color is not healthy and immediately after transplantation they start feeling normal in most cases so it's really magic to see that happening and for people that haven't been going to the toilet to pass urine all of a sudden become very emotional for something that people don't you know even think about you know you go to the toilet and you pass urine and that's a normal thing to do but some people really become emotional after all that so it's magic and it's really beautiful george is on instagram is asking what's the biggest change from the first transplant you did compared to now so well obviously there is a couple of thousand transplants uh, uh, under the belt so i feel in the first, the first kidney transplant I did was obviously uh, with a very senior consultant surgeon assisting me and showing me the way. And every step of that operation, uh, you know, you, you find your way and it's difficult. Now I dare to say I have seen all the potential difficulties uh, that could arise with any step of the operation. I've had complications, I had to solve complications, I had to solve life-threatening issues, and there will be people listening even in, because I have been in contact with quite a number of, of patients that I have been operating on, um, with either, you know, smooth rides, but also sometimes with really difficult rides, so to speak, with difficult and complicated surgeries. Um, so the, the biggest difference for me is um, I don't take things for granted, but it's really the experience. Um, technically, not many things have changed in the operation and the principles are all the same. I do think that in general, um, patients that we transplant are, uh, you know, we don't have any more limits in terms of how old you could be as long as you're fit enough. Um, and also I'd like to, I'm very, you know, keen to take on very complex cases uh, because I think the chance of a transplant changing a person's life for the better is always greater than not to transplant. So you become really inventive as to how you could uh, overcome problems or even prevent them, um, even when there's really complex cases uh, and, and complexities that might uh, jeopardize the outcome. So experience is really the difference, but all the rest has remained the same. Uh, the drugs, there's not much change in the drugs for the immunosuppression, the drugs you should take to, um, uh, to prevent the kidney from being rejected by your own body. Uh, those, those, those drugs haven't really changed over the, over, the, over the last decades. And yeah, the whole approach, the only real difference is that we have come to the understanding that being in a hospital doesn't mean a, person, a patient should be in his or her bed uh, for all that time. And we nowadays really know that outcomes of any operation, but also for transplant operations, are better if the patient gets an enhanced recovery pathway. So that's relevant to the previous question as well about recovery time, uh, a kidney patient or a living donor, anyone I operate on uh, gets dragged out of their beds almost immediately. And <laughs> you, you're not starved anymore in the hospital. You can eat almost immediately. 
and we really, really start you know, um, encouraging people and stand there on the sideline and being the biggest supporters of, you know, come on, you can do this and you can get out of bed and you can take that step. And it, you know, it, it provides all the systems from being reactivated from, from scratch. And that's so much better. And that's so much better for, you know, people's mental health as well. So that's, that's another big change that it's no longer like you have to stay flat in your bed for seven days. We moved away completely from, you know, let's get rid of those beds and let's sit you up, let's sit you out, let's walk around and let's be active. That's a really good change. It's good, huh? And it works, Dee. It really works. George's next question is, what's the toughest part of the job? The unpredictability of, uh, of the cases. So if, if you're on call as a transplant surgeon, uh, obviously um, you could, there's a, there's a, a small chance that you're, you, you're not transplanting, um, but being on call normally means you have a normal working day and a normal working week. And on top of that, you're on call and you might have to do a transplant or sometimes multiple transplants in the evening and the night throughout. So you have worked your whole day and then you start being on call and doing your transplants. And then the next day, quite often you're still working somehow. Of course, we are cross covering each other so that if I've been doing two or three kidney transplants in, in an evening and a night, uh, the next morning I was gonna do another operation. We try of course to, to make sure that people get their cross cover or plan the on-calls in such a way that this doesn't happen frequently. That's tough. Um, also, um, this is not to be dramatic, but it's a big responsibility to uh, deal with the gift of life. Um, yes. I, see that, uh, I see that completely because it's a person's wish to help other people in need of a transplant by donating their organs, either alive as a live donor or as a deceased donor. It's that precious organ that so many people have waited for, for, for years or, you know, um, in, in desperate situations that uh, we basically don't allow ourselves um, complications. We are quite tough on ourselves and we know there is some uh, limitations in what we can do, but overall, I think there's always pressure to do well. And of course, I mean, when time flies by, um, with experience, you become less nervous about it. Um, but still, you know, your transplant that you're doing that day might fail on the table because of something you do or something that happens during the operation without you doing that uh, and sometimes completely unrelated to you. But something might happen that would jeopardize the outcome of that transplant and the transplant might fail and that's still our respons responsibility. No one else's. It's not the nephrologist's responsibility. It's not the anesthetist's uh, responsibility if something goes wrong. Ultimately, it's my responsibility. So that is, um, that's quite, sometimes it is really difficult. And luckily I'm, I'm quite resilient and, and I'm quite good with dealing with stress. Um, but I see this is a burden on many people. So the resources are stretched. Um, we often have to wait for several hours. People don't realize that, but 
you know, I, I sit in the coffee room in the theatres in the middle of the night quite often waiting until my patient is there for me to operate on. Um, you have to wait because there's another emergency that would kick back your starting time. Um, and then without too much sleep, um, it could be difficult for many people to, uh, uh, to deal with that. And often, of course, when things go well, and thank goodness, um, most of the times things go really well, and we can celebrate every transplant for people and the impact it has on their lives. But if things go wrong, it is really, really wrong. And it has a big impact on the patient, but also on, on the surgeon and the rest of the team, obviously. So those are just some examples. Um, but overall, it's hugely rewarding job. Um, it's great because I know many people that I operate on because I've seen them in the transplant assessment clinics. Uh, I sometimes have operated them for a peritoneal dialysis catheter or uh, a fistula, uh, sometimes have removed their polycystic kidneys, uh, pre-transplant, and you know, you have a longer relationship than just that particular moment. And you see them back in the clinic as well. So that's another reward uh, for us to see that really it impacts so positively on so many patients. That must feel so good to know that what you're doing is literally changing people's lives for the better. Yeah, absolutely. But if things go wrong, as I said, they really go wrong. <laughs> and then uh, it's still uh, my passion to, 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 to be there for the patient and their family uh, and to stay in touch where you know, some special relationship has built. George's next question is, what is your most memorable transplant? Yeah, there's not just one, but uh, I can give you one example. Um, in my previous life, I often refer to that as my previous life when I was a transplant surgeon in Rotterdam in the Netherlands in the Erasmus uh, MC. Um, I also was a liver transplant surgeon. Um, I, I don't practice liver transplant surgery at the moment because we're not uh, doing liver transplants at Imperial, where I work. Um, but my farewell operation is, is probably one that I will remember for a long time. Uh, that was more than five years ago now. Uh, it was my very last on call. And we were doing mutual aid for another transplant center that was temporarily closed due to some logistics. And we had a very high urgency uh, liver transplant recipient uh, on the waiting list uh, for them. And that patient got an offer for a very good uh, liver. And um, it was very complex. It was the third liver transplant. There were drains sticking out the, the sick liver that had to be removed. Um, very, very complex surgery. It took 27 hours. We had 46 liters of blood loss. Wow. Uh, of course, with uh, a machine that would auto-transfuse that blood that we lost. The liver that was also remarkable because it was a very good liver, but if you keep a liver for such a long time outside the human body, it won't survive a very long time. And we, for the first time, could employ uh, a special machine that would keep the liver preserved uh, under special conditions by putting it on a pump, basically. And that was the very first time we did it. Um, and actually, because probably we did that, 
the, the transplant after removal of the, the sick kidney, the sick liver, that was the, the, the biggest difficulty of the whole operation. Um, we could uh, manage to have the patient was home within two weeks, which is remarkable for a liver transplant uh, and still doing really, really well. And, you know, that was very memorable <laughs> because it was one of the most tough uh, on-calls I've ever done. But there's, there's several. And of course, you remember um, transplants that had not so good outcome or where we just escaped um, that a person died during, um, during a transplant. And with liver transplant, that, that happened regularly, actually, that you really had sick patients during the operation that would have a, a cardiac arrest uh, during the, the transplant, and you had to grab the heart in your hand and really massage the heart while you were doing complex other stuff. So yeah, it is, um, it is impactful. Uh, and I remember a lot of operations actually still, and especially the patients attached to those operations. Wow, that sounds absolutely incredible. The next question on my list is by Mike from Twitter, but we've actually covered his question because he was asking about preemptive transplantation and he was also asking about the process of transplantation. So just acknowledging, Mike, that we have seen your question, but it's also been covered. So the, the next, sorry. If, if, if I may, um, yes. we haven't said yet because we were talking about living donors and their evaluation and things like that. Okay. Um, and since Mike, Mike's question was already covered, it's really good to know that um, living donation brings so many other advantages uh, over deceased donor transplants because, because you can plan the operation. You can, um, so it's not just a, a great kidney coming from a very healthy person. You can plan the operation and therefore you can do very difficult things. And even those patients who have a living donor option that is not matched, to come back to the matching question, um, if your blood group is different, um, it could be that you're, you're, you can't have the kidney that the living donor that wishes to donate to you, um, but you might be able to, and, and we have a system for that obviously in the UK, it's called the UK Living Donor Shared Scheme, uh, otherwise known as paired and pooled transplantation, that we find other pairs in the UK that are in the exact same situation as you are, uh, they have a living donor, but they can't have the kidney from that particular donor themselves. And you can just swap kidneys from these donors, of course, uh, anonymous, anonymously organized by NHS Blood and Transplant. And that would enrich your opportunities for transplant enormously. Uh, and other people will benefit from that same living donor uh, option as well, because otherwise they wouldn't have had the opportunity to be transplanted. And quite often these paired transplants are initiated by complete anonymous people that donate their kidneys um, in an altruistic way, or as quite a lot of people actually that do that, don't find it really altruistic. They find it a completely normal and right thing to do, um, but they can, can start a whole chain of transplants. And in the end, someone from the waiting list gets called up um, for a living donor transplant because they're end of the chain. Someone has to receive that last donor's kidney and they also benefit. 
So that's that's one thing I wanted to highlight um, that people have, you know, especially women that have been pregnant, they can have antibodies against a, a variety of tissue types from potential donors and might not be transplantable from a deceased donor transplant easily because you, it's very rare to find such um, a, a, a matched donor for you. And we'll get back to that uh, hopefully uh, later. Um, but that's another very good um, advantage of the living donor transplant. Also, some people need pre-treatment before they can be uh, transplanted to remove certain antibodies or circulating factors from the blood um, or to start some uh, immunosuppression beforehand uh, because of their, their, their primary kidney disease, so the underlying problem. Um, that's something you can only do with living donor kidney transplant because you know when you're going to do the transplant. Um, so those are additional advantages of living donor kidney transplantation. Jonathan on Twitter asks, what do you think of the future of kidney dialysis stroke transplant will look like? Bionic or mechanical kidney? Yeah, great question. Uh, I wish I would know, because then I would know uh, where to invest in professionally and also perhaps personally. Um, I do think, you know, technology is, is, is moving ahead. Uh, we see some initiatives of uh, really small implantable dialysis uh, or even implantable kidneys, people uh, call it, um, with highly advanced technology replacing the, uh, the good old dialysis machines. Um, there's people who, I think that those, those are progressing, but not to the speed that people have expected them to progress at. Uh, and I don't know why that really is, but I think it's very different. People come to the realization the kidney is not so easy to replace. And even the dialysis machine, of course, is is not the same as, as a kidney uh, because it can't replace all its functions and dialysis patients that are listening know that all too well. You need several drugs to, to compensate for all the things the dialysis machine can't do. Um, so I don't know where this is going to head. I, I, I'm, I'm sure there will be implantable or you know, mini, mini dialysis machines that you can carry. I think the biggest uh, the biggest revolution is now that lots of people get access to home hemodialysis, which is, of course, um, uh, much better for, for many people than in-center hemodialysis. Um, whether I would put my money, so to speak, on the development of uh, 3D printed constructs that could be kidney seeded with stem cells that would form a new kidney. Um, I, you know, you see publications every year, and this happens uh, in my whole career already, um, where you see that, oh, kidney in a dish is already developed and it's ready for patients in a year. Um, I find this really difficult because science is, is fantastic, but it simply doesn't work so quickly. And it needs lots of time and it needs further developments. And you see that with everything. So, um, I think the future might be that I'm, I, I might be implanting uh, kidneys in the future that were from a 3D printed background um, and constructed with stem cells and perhaps people invent even more smart ways. 
So you could also, for example, have a porcine a pig kidney that is then decellularized. So all the living particles are basically removed by various processes. And again, human stem cells are brought into that to seed and rebuild the kidney. So it, it might be either of those options uh, that would form the future. Um, I, I don't know, it will be very fascinating to keep following, but for now, there's nothing better than a kidney transplant for, for patients. The next question comes from Helen on Twitter, and she says, I've been waiting four years for a kidney. I'm told I'm a complex case due to antibodies. I'm losing hope. What are my chances? I don't understand. Yeah, this, this, um, this is a great point. And unfortunately, this is a reality for, for many patients waiting for a kidney transplant. So Helen, you're not alone. Um, the complexity of antibodies is that uh, they're quite aggressive. So as soon as the antibodies are uh, antibodies against someone else's tissue type, I was alluding to that earlier. So if you have antibodies against you know, the majority of tissue types of donors from the last, you know, last 10,000 donors that came by in the UK, um, we can test that and we test for that. And this is called your CRF, your calculated reaction fraction. So if you have 100% antibodies against all these 10,000 past organ donors in the UK, you can calculate your chance to get a match, which is you know, very close to zero. It might not be zero. So there are several things there. First of all, um, again, it would be important to, I don't know, Helen, uh, I think, um, so it would be important to investigate as to whether all the living donor options were explored. Is there someone willing to donate? Even if their tissue type is not the correct one, we can come back to the paired and pooled transplant scheme. Somewhere in the UK, there might be a living donor that you know, has that rare opportunity for Helen uh, to be a match. And by having a living donor, even if it doesn't reflect a match for yourself, it could be that that opens up an, a new pool of potential donors. Um, and by swapping these kidneys, of course, you could still get transplanted. That's one thing. Then, of course, there are some centers in the UK and in the world, although it's become a bit more rare than in the past before we had the sharing scheme. Um, you can remove antibodies and, and, and do pretreatments of patients with quite aggressive therapy with immunosuppression uh, with several other drugs that people don't normally get. So with special dialysis, you can, it's called plasma freezer or plasma exchange. You can remove perhaps these antibodies successfully. And again, you would need a living donor to plan this treatment because you can perhaps remove them with the treatment. But if you then don't have a kidney offer um, that you could, you could then not get transplanted because um, it, 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 there's simply you know, no kidney available. And these treatments normally don't last forever. So you might just have a window of a couple of days to a week when the antibodies have been removed and they stay away for them to do the transplant and again, come back with your immunosuppression in, in more aggressive ways than, uh, than you would normally have uh, immunosuppression. 
Um, that might be an option, um, but that only really works with living donor kidney transplantation. And of course, those results are not as good if, as if someone ha doesn't have antibodies um, that need to be removed. So we have to place that in context, but those transplant outcomes could still be much better than the survival uh, on dialysis. And the longer you have dialyzed, the more problems you could expect. Of course, some people uh, stay on dialysis for years and years and years without too much problems. But most dialysis patients in the end will develop some problems. So that's one thing. Um, then we have changed the, the way that deceased donor kidneys are allocated. So even though there's not a kidney just available on the shelf for everyone, you still need to do that. You still need to allocate any kidney that becomes available um, uh, fairly and distribute them to those patients who, you know, um, uh, at that moment should receive that kidney in the most fair way. So NHS Blood and Transplant is doing that. Uh, since September 2019, there is a new uh, system and people that have, you know, I, I said antibodies with 100% CRF, for example, anyone higher than 85% uh, is called highly sensitized and normally very difficult to find a suitable match kidney for. Uh, those patients are in the highest priority for that kidney to be allocated to them. If that rare tissue type that people don't have antibodies against becomes available, it would be for them. Equally, everyone who is waiting for longer than seven years has priority over other patients in the allocation scheme. So basically, in summary, the most difficult to match patients or the people that have waited the longest will always get some priority um, in the new allocation scheme. And that we have seen at Imperial um, a drastic change in in, in, in the, the first year, of course, we had some issues with COVID that, um, uh, that really impacted on the transplant programs. But we have transplanted lots of people that have been waiting for a long time and were very, very difficult not, and even impossible to match. Um, and we were able to transplant them because of the new allocation scheme. So that is good news, potentially gives at least some hope for those people who know they are very complex because of antibodies. So there's, you see, there's still some options. And even though it might look completely um, uh, impossible to get a transplant, there might be still sparks of hope. And of course, I don't know Helen's particular situation, but these, these are generally speaking, some options that might not have been explored altogether. So there is, there is hope there. So hopefully that is good news. Yeah, I hope um, so. Of course, I'm not promising anything, but these are, these are things to at least explore and address with, uh, with their kidney team. And the final question comes from Truth Speaker on Twitter. And their question is, what are the guidelines regarding the use of face masks for kidney transplant recipients? And that, um, in brackets, it says, in general scenario, not due to COVID. Ah, this is, this is really nice because it reminds me of uh, uh, a very nice story that we nowadays, uh, in the COVID times, we're so used to wearing face masks 
And especially, I think, kidney patients and transplant patients will vigorously do that. Um, but people might not know that the first successful human transplant, human kidney transplant, was done in 1954, in, uh, in, just before Christmas, in Boston in, in the US. This was between identical twin brothers, the Herrick twins, and they have, uh, they, 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 that transplant went very well. Uh, and then the recipient went home, but actually, you know, was not prepared at all to go home and thought, you know, why don't I go to the bank and get some money? Uh, because I need to buy some groceries, I need to buy some stuff because um, I haven't been home for, for weeks. Um, the patient also received immunosuppression and there was not an awful lot of experience with these medications. And they knew, of course, they were weakening the immune system. So they advised uh, the patient to wear a mask, a face mask, wherever he went. And of course, this was not a medical face mask as we know now, but it was really a face mask that you see in certain uh, Western movies, for example. <laughs> so you can imagine what happened. He went into the bank wearing his face mask and immediately the police was called. He was arrested <laughs> and people thought he was going to rob the bank. Um, this is a story that just shows how, how well we have adopted <laughs> to the current circumstances. And we're now all wearing face masks. Uh, so bank robbers and not bank robbers. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, in general, pre-COVID, people were not advised to wear face masks uh, perhaps they should have been advised to wear face masks in retrospect, but at least there was no, no real indication that was needed. Um, this is different to some patients who get a bone marrow transplant, and this is perhaps why the question arose. Um, they have to be in quarantine um, in certain types of bone marrow transplantation where really your whole bone marrow gets depleted, so wiped out in, in proper English. Um, and therefore your immune system is so weak that you would pick up any infection uh, that would come to you. Uh, with kidney transplant and liver transplant and other solid organ transplants, the immune system is not that weak with immunosuppression that you would pick up anything. And therefore we normally did not advise anyone to wear face masks. But now with COVID, definitely wherever you go, wear a face mask. Um, if you are a transplant patient, but also if you're a dialysis patient, you're still in a, in a vulnerable category of patients. Thank you so much for answering all of our questions today. I've learned so much and I know that the listeners have learned a lot too. This is the first interview with yourself and we're hoping that you can come back and answer some more questions for the listeners in the future. So now that the listeners have heard this interview, it might spark some more discussions and might think, oh, I'd like to ask this question or that question. So we'll give the listeners another opportunity to ask their questions and invite you to come back and answer some more. Yeah, I would be delighted because, uh, you know, if you feel that um, there's still so many questions that you are, you always forgot, forget to ask your doctor or your nurse, um, and, and the questions you might not dare to ask. Uh, I mean, you can even do it anonymously, right, D? You don't Absolutely. have to be named. Um, and uh, I'm so happy to do that. And especially with uh, the inspirational D behind the microphone, uh, <laughs> it would be really nice to come back. Oh, thank you. And thank you for all you're doing for, for your fellow kidney patients. Thank you for listening to Diary of a Kidney Warrior podcast. 
And don't forget that you can contact me on social media using the handle Diary of a Kidney Warrior. Please do subscribe to the podcast and please do tell a friend. New episodes of this podcast are released every Monday. Until next time, take care and choose to live. Diary of a Kitty Warrior. Sharing faith, knowledge, hope, and love.